Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. And this week we will remind you of a time in 2018 when we did just that with a story about the biggest club in English football that is once again rearing its head. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today as ever is transfer guru and pundit extraordinaire, Mr. Duncan Castles. Duncan... Let me hear your dulcet tones. <laughs> what would you like to hear, Johnny? Let's uh, tell, tell the listeners what we're going to give them on this uh, first post-January transfer window episode of the Transfer Window podcast. Well, we're going to have an overview of this transfer window. Perhaps deadline day wasn't too exciting in the end, but there's lots to talk about about what happened overall. We're going to touch on Manchester United as well as other big clubs in the Premier League and beyond. Duncan, let's start with how the biggest club in England, Manchester United, ended up with a 30-year-old Nigerian as their new striker in the midst of a cultural reboot when they were supposed to be looking at younger players with a different style of profile and only going out to buy the guys that they felt could make a difference over the long term. Yeah, it's been an extraordinary January window from Manchester United. As you say, the line from the club, from Ed Woodward, from Uli Gunnar Solskjaer, um, from internal briefings has been, we are changing, we're building for the future, we are culturally rebooting the squad. Um, I, I lost count of the number of times Solskjaer went into press conferences saying we will only buy a player if he is good for the long-term plan for the club. Yet what we see them doing on the final days of the window are bidding for a Bournemouth striker who has been out since um, the end of December with a hamstring injury and wouldn't have been fit to play. Josh King, 28-year-old, um, reasonable Premier League player, but uh, I don't think anyone has really ever thought of him as being the answer to Manchester United's uh, attempt to get into the Champions League for the first time in, in two years. Um they made, I can tell you, um, a, an inquiry about another Bournemouth forward, Ryan Fraser, the Scotland international, um, which eventually came to nothing. But again, um, another good player. But you wonder um, how exactly Fraser fits into that uh, pronounced strategy of the club. And then eventually they end up signing Odion Igalo, um, as you say, about to turn 31 in the summer. Um, Good goal scorer for Nigeria. Um, I think he has 16 and 35 for Nigeria, albeit five of those goals came in a, a two-match um, uh, period against Libya, who I think are currently ranked 101 in the world. Um, player who, again, hasn't played any football since December, in his case, since the, the beginning of December. Um, he spent a lot of last year missing uh, matches for his team, Shanghai, 
um, because of a hamstring injury. I think between May and September, he didn't play any games for Shanghai, although he did manage to go in the middle of that period to the African Nations Cup and score a lot of goals for Nigeria in that tournament. Interestingly, a player that Louis van Gaal tried to sign in 2016, January window, um, a £35 million offer to Watford at the time, which um, I actually reported in the, in the Sunday Times following that window, one that Watford turned down. Um, and interestingly, a player that Van Gaal was looking at to try and save his season, to try and save his job at Manchester United and to try and get the goals that would put them into the Champions League the next season, which ultimately didn't happen. Um, it's a lot further on down the line in terms of Igalo's career. Spent a long, lot of time in China since then. Um, very well paid over there. This is not a cheap deal. Manchester United have spent a considerable amount on the loan fee and on the wages. They have an option to buy. They're not committed to keeping the player beyond the summer. But um, is that how does that fit with the cultural reboot? How does that fit with the strategy of um, improving the squad and only doing deals that will improve the squad? Um, is he a good enough player for Manchester United? I talked to someone who knew him well at Watford. He said that in the period in which um, Watford uh, had that bid from Manchester United, which they turned down or subsequent to that period, Watford were actually looking to replace the player and upgrade the player. They turned it down because they felt they could get more money um, from Manchester United. Um, but they didn't see Igalo as a long-term solution um, for them in the Premier League. He says that Igalo is quite a selfish player. Um, he can score goals. He does have one very good trick that he used to beat defenders a lot in the Premier League, but people will work that out before too long. Um, and kind of surprised that, as most people are, that Manchester United went there. The Josh King um, approach, uh, I believe there were two offers to Bournemouth. Initially, Manchester United trying to take him on loan with an option to buy. Uh, Bournemouth resisted that and United offered, I'm told, £20 million and then £25 million for King. Um, and there's a common denominator amongst all these players. And the common denominator um, is an agent, um, actually Uli Gunnar Solskjaer's agent, um, called Jim Solbakken. And I believe you've got some audio for us from a December 2018 podcast where we, uh, where we discuss Solskjaer's appointment as interim Manchester United manager and um, his history of working with Saul back in, in his previous jobs. Absolutely. I'm just going to rub Duncan's bald dome now to get this uh, audio uh, ready for you. And here it is. I honestly think if Solskjaer delivers... Um, and doesn't and he doesn't need to deliver anywhere near the level that Di Matteo did in his caretaker period, then the Glazers will seriously think about hiring him because, as we've said uh, many times in this podcast, the Glazers are about money. They're not about football. Um, and if they can see a surer way to make an, e surer, an easier way to make profit with Solskjaer in charge of the club, that will be very appealing to them. Um, and just one last thing on Solskjaer, there's a, there's a very interesting article uh, published uh, by a Norwegian magazine, or republished by a Norwegian magazine called Josimar, which I, I would um, urge Manchester United fans to have a look at about um, uh, Solskjaer's transfer dealings um, at pre in previous management positions. They, they detail 
um, his relationship with uh, an agent called Jim Solbakken, who was his own personal agent as a player and with whom he actually ran a, a player agency um, until uh, the Federation forced him to sell his shares in the agency because he would uh, he ran the risk of signing players from an agency that he owned himself, which would be an obvious conflict of interest. And they, they point out that in his, um, it was written in 2014, this article uh, uh, originally, and they point out that 21 of the deals he'd made as Manchester United reserve manager, Molder manager, and then Cardiff City manager had been for um, players represented by Saul Bakken and that three of the, the, the deals he made as soon as he came into Cardiff City were Saul Bakken players, three Norwegian, um, two signed from Molda and one from I think PSV Eindhoven and the three of them made just six Premier League um, appearances between them and um, you know, people in Cardiff will say that those that the money spent on those players uh, when he had the opportunity coming in around this time of year uh, to try and save Cardiff from relegation, and they were outside the relegation when he took uh, area when he took over. Um, money wasted on them contributed to ultimately being relegated, and uh, Solskjaer eventually losing his job um, halfway through the following season in the Championship. So interesting to to note and read and uh, think about if if Solskjaer. Uh, manages to to get a hold on some kind of transfer decision making at Manchester United down the line. Well, that's uh, remarkably prescient stuff, Mister Castles. Uh, I think you you called it fair to say. Well, look, this is this as I said there comes from an article uh, written by a Norwegian, very good Norwegian football magazine called Yosimar. Um, it's an article that you can find on the internet easily. If you read that article now, you will see that at the top of it, it mentions that Saul Bakken took legal action against them over the article. Uh, obviously, uh, the article is still on the website. Uh, therefore, I think that gives you a sense of um, whether Josef Ars reporting was accurate or not. When you look into the detail of it, and I, and I, would, I would encourage people to read it because it is fascinating, you will see that in the period that Solskjaer was first manager of uh, Manchester United Reserves, then manager of Malda, and then manager of Cardiff City, he signed 21 players from Jim Solbakken's football agency um, for those clubs. And we're talking players who joined Manchester United, um, Josh King, one of those players, um, as well as players who joined Cardiff and Malda. Now, that agency was an agency that Solskjaer co-founded with Saul Bakken. Um, they've been friends since 1991. Um, Solskjaer was forced to divest himself of his shares in the agency at a certain point by the FA because the FA don't allow, the Football Association in England don't allow um, coaches to own shares in, in player agencies for obvious reasons. Um, subsequent to that, he carried on signing players from Solbakken. So the three signings he made at Cardiff City um, of Norwegian players in the, his first January window there, players who were intended to keep the club up, were all Solbakken clients. Um, they made a grand total of six Premier League starts between them in that half season they were at Cardiff and were supposed to be helping the club avoid relegation. Obviously, the club went down. Um, in the subsequent season, Solskjaer was sacked by Cardiff 
um, with them headed towards the wrong end of the championship table. Duncan, isn't there just an argument, though, that Solskjaer is operating in a small pool? Norway's like Scotland. It's a very small environment in terms of football. There's a lot of people rubbing shoulders with each other because... You know, there's not a, a vast array of different agents that you can work with like there is in the Premier League. I think you can make that argument. I think if, if you want to make that argument, I encourage you to read the piece and, and read the detail of how um, Solbach and Solskjaer set up camps for young Norwegian players um, run by their agency, which essentially with Manchester United um, coaches coming over uh, to some of those camps to coach the players. Um, and uh, as Josimar describes it, it gave them the opportunity to sign up the best young players in Norway at that age and then um, for Solbakken and the company to make profits from them down the line. There, there, there are also a couple of deals uh, where Manchester United are involved when Solskjaer was the reserve manager at Manchester United. So you have the 2009 Mami Biram Juf transfer, one that Ferguson Sir Alex Ferguson, who was the manager at the time, um, apparently when the player was signed, admitted that he hadn't seen the player before that transaction was made. And another one, um, a year later, 2010, Anders Lindegaard, goalkeeper from Allison's FK, signed for £4 million. Um, Solbakken had been the player's agent until the deal was done, according to Josimar. The age, an, an alternative agent was brought in to represent the player at the time the transaction was concluded, with Solbakken becoming the club's agent, i.e. Manchester United's agent, in the deal. That alternative agent that was brought in is a business partner of Solbakken's called Atta Aneki. Now, who is Atta Aneki? Atta Aneki is the Norwegian-Nigerian agent who represents Odin Igalo. Um, so the connections there are, uh, are fascinating. What I can tell you for sure is that Saul Bakken was making calls um, through this window trying to get deals set up for Manchester United, uh, Ryan Fraser being one of those. He was asking, I'm, I'm told, whether it would be possible to get him out of Bournemouth uh, and bring him to Manchester United and what the financial terms involved. And that would be, um, as I say, it didn't, uh, progress uh, and Ryan Fraser is still at Bournemouth out of contract in the summer and looking for a new club um, but there are questions being asked about why Manchester United end up trying to sign players like Josh King and Odin Agallo who are clearly contrary to their um, stated transfer policy in the very last days of the window um, and some other interesting stuff going on around Solbach in which Josimar have also reported and other people have reported in Norway. He has been named as the agent of um, a Senegalese player, Babakar Saar, who played for Malda under Solskjaer um, and was released from his contract and allowed to move first to Russia and then to Saudi Arabia after he had been accused of rape, um, actually multiple cases of rape in Norway. He's still has an arrest warrant out for him, um, but there is no uh, extradition deal with Saudi Arabia, so Norwegian authorities haven't been able to uh, conclude that trial. Um, it's, uh, it's not a pretty picture, I think, is, uh, 
is it would be a summary of what the Norwegian media has reported on in extensive detail. And as I say, I'd refer the listeners to that if they want to um, dig into this a bit more. Was there any other interest uh, that United had in players in that window, Duncan, that perhaps people aren't aware of? Well, look, there was discussion about Edinson Cavani as um, the uh, option to come in and sort out their attacking problems in many ways. Um, a much more natural fit uh, if you're looking for, if you're going to take an older player um, to get you through the second half of the season with the view of getting one or two more good seasons out of him. Uh, Cavani's ended up staying at Paris Saint-Germain with um, Atletico's president complaining about the player's relatives and agents and their financial demands. Cavani's brother has responded to those comments from the Atletico president by saying that he um, wanted to go to Atletico and if it had only been about money, he could have gone to Manchester or Chelsea instead. So there was obviously a, a, an attempt there to get a player who um, has a track record of scoring at the top level of football and, and, and it would obviously be a better fit to what Manchester United are trying to do than the player they ended up recruiting in this January window. What about the window overall, Duncan? I was uh, sitting in the office reporting on every coming and going on deadline day, and it was one of the quietest that I have seen. Uh, were you impressed with the work done by many clubs over that period? It was a very quiet deadline day. Um, just looking at the Deloitte figures, uh, they, they give us their estimates of spending immediately after the windows closed. And it has to be underlined that these are estimates because they, they, they haven't had the chance to properly check all of these figures. And they report there was only £25 million spent by Premier League clubs on deadline day, uh, which is one of the lowest totals for a long time. The, the, the gross spend in the January window was very high, um, £230 million, up 28% in last year, second highest ever spend in a, in a January window by the Premier League. The spend for the season, similar, £1.6 for the season is Deloitte's estimate. That's up 14%, again the second highest ever after the 17-18 uh, uh, season. A um, couple of interesting things that... that uh, just 2% of the money spent was spent between Premier League clubs. Um, so you, you see that reluctance that clubs have to deal with each other, which I think is probably exacerbated by the tightness of this Premier League once you go away from the, the title race, which is clearly the least tight it's ever been. But you have these the, so many clubs condensed into um, a very small point differential at the bottom end of the division, so many clubs threatened by relegation. Um, and a lot of clubs fighting for that fourth um, Champions League place, and, and they don't—they clearly do not want to sell to each other uh, in the window and, and uh, lose important players or even risk giving uh, their their rivals some small advantage by letting them have one, a player that's not particularly important to them. Across Europe, we've got record spends as well. Um, everyone of the big five leagues has spent more on transfer fees this season than they've ever done um, before, apart, of course, from England. Um, and the total gross spend is a record 6.45 billion euros on transfer fees from those five leagues, England, Spain, 
France, Germany and Italy for this season, which is a quite incredible amount of money. The biggest deal was uh, West Ham on deadline day, obviously, uh, taking Jared Bowen from Hull City. Do you think that's a move that will uh, be a good one for David Moyes over the long term? Young player, a lot of potential? Yeah, it's, it's an intriguing deal. Like you say, it's, uh, it was the biggest on deadline day. Um, it, was for, it ended up being for an initial £14 million pounds, uh, with £8 million pounds of uh, potential bonuses involved. So uh, it's pretty much as West Ham spent as much on Jared Bowen as all the other Premier League clubs spent together on their deadline day deals. Um, David Sullivan, I think, did this deal under duress. Uh, it, I'm told that Bowen's representatives pushed for a very high salary. Um, Newcastle were interested in the player, but interested in him for the summer. Crystal Palace were also trying to get him, but Crystal Palace could only do it on a loan with a, an option to buy. Um, that's been structured in, a, in an interesting way in that the bonuses are very much performance related. So West Ham have sort of said to Hull City, if you believe in this player and you think he's going to do well in the Premier League, we're prepared to give you good bonuses according to that. So, uh, for example, there's a bonus for, of a million pounds if he plays for England. There's a bonus of a million if he signs a new contract at West Ham. He's on a five and a half year deal initially. Um, another million if he scores 10 Premier League goals in a season. Um, another 1.25 if he gets to 15. Another 1.5 if he gets to 20. So they can get up to 3.75 million in a season should he score at something close to the rate he's been scoring in the championship. So he had 14 um, three seasons ago, uh, 22 goals in the championship last season. He had 16 in the championship so far this season. And I think West Ham's thinking here is they're buying a player who has a lot of talent, can help them try and stay up. But if they don't stay in the division, they've got someone who's absolutely championship ready. And I'm told that Bowen's agents tried to get a release clause uh, involved in that deal on, on the condition that, that, that uh, should West Ham go down, he'd be allowed to leave. And um, Sullivan held his ground and said, absolutely no way. Um, you want this deal to happen. You want the wages you're asking for. It's going to have to be no release clause. Um, if you play well enough in this six months and score enough goals, you won't have to worry about that. And um, if you play well enough and score enough goals, then a Premier League club's going to come in and offer uh, a substantial fee for you. So you'll get another Premier League club anyway. So good example of the kind of um, bartering and, uh, and tactics that are used on deadline day. I'll tell you, West Ham definitely paid more than they, they planned to pay for this, but they needed, uh, they felt they needed the player to come in. And Bowen's representatives used the situation to, to try and extract the maximum financial terms. I believe he's got a pay rise of over three times his um, Hull City salary um, by moving to West Ham. West Ham certainly looked all right going forward. It looked like the defence that was uh, the bigger problem on Saturday. How do you rate their squads uh, in terms of their ability to stay up uh, and how David Moyes has gotten so far? Because it's, it's not been the most auspicious of stars, is it? Look, they've clearly got a squad that should be good enough to stay in the division. Um, they've invested a lot of money in it uh, over the last couple of years and there's, there's 
there's a, a substantial amount of talent in there. They've, they've hired David Moyes because he is one a known face to them. He kept them in the division before and they, they decided to part company with them and, and, and follow the, the Manuel Pellegrini experiment. Um, but also because he's, he's a percentage manager. He's, he's In some ways, he's a, a kind of Scottish Sam Allardyce in that he knows the division and he'll play um, percentage football to try and keep you there, uh, and I think it. I I wouldn't. I would expect them to stay up because they've got enough talent in their squad to get results uh, to stay in the division, and they've got a manager who knows the division uh, and has a track record of of keeping teams up. Well, one of the other big stories of the transfer window, but it didn't come to fruition this one, was Newcastle's bid for Bukhari Sumari. Um, can you enlighten us on the detail of that, Duncan? Yeah, this this is fascinating because um, Newcastle made a very substantial offer for Bukhari Sumari, who um, is top talent at Leo, who is being watched by a lot of the, the leading European clubs uh, with the consideration of of trying to get him in the summer. Leo wanted to sell the player. Um, they, they identified him as an individual that they were prepared to let go and cash in on in this window. Um, they accepted an offer from Newcastle United for uh, a figure that I'm told was 43 million euros guaranteed plus a further 10 million euros of bonuses. The deal didn't go through because the player's agents um, persuaded him to stay uh, my information is that the, the players' agents, we've, we've talked about this in the podcast before, were asking for a substantial percentage of the transfer fee to agree to that deal, um, a, a percentage that Leo felt was, was far too much uh, um, for them to concede to allow the transfer to go ahead. They, they spent a lot of time trying to persuade the player. I think it, it's an indication of two things, that Sumari and his agents think they will be able to get a better club in the summer. And... Um, Generally, that's because other clubs are tied down in their financial fair play budgets mid-season and want to wait until 1st July when a new season starts to do a deal of, of that nature. So I think we definitely need to pay, a percent, pay attention to what goes on with Sumari going forward because I don't think this is the end of the story. Um, he obviously he said he wants to stay at Lille, but he won't want to stay at Lille long term. And we, I think we're going to see um, more important uh, and stronger clubs than Newcastle bid for them. It's also interesting that Newcastle put so much money down as an offer. Um, that's it's it, Newcastle are not renowned for the largesse in the transfer market. This has happened at a time in which there is discussion of a, a takeover of Newcastle United. Now, that's not entirely novel because there's been discussion of a takeover of Newcastle United in pretty much every transfer window for the last five years, it feels like. Um, but this was real, genuine, um, and Leo would have sold if they could have convinced the player to, to go. And it, it tells you that um, perhaps something is changing at Newcastle United. Mm. In terms of transfers and big money transfers at Newcastle, they haven't had a lot of luck. You think back to Joe Linton, who, well, he's almost become a meme, hasn't he, in terms of uh, his inability to find the back of the net. Um, do you think that they have an issue with their transfer policy more generally, or do you see shoots of recovery in some of the signings that they have made there? They've, they've struggled 
with their signings, that's clear. You know, the, the big money deals they put down and forward players have, um, have struggled to score goals. But then they're coming into a team that plays extremely defensive football. Played extremely defensive football last season under Rafa Benitez. Um, effective, kept them in the division. Uh, you know, a, a very capable coach using a, a reasonable squad of players to play um, deep defence, low block, organise the team well, take your opportunities on the break and grab your points where they can. They haven't changed very much under Steve Bruce. So you've got to say it's it's you know it's tough for players to come from who have never played in the Premier League before, as Joe Linton has never played in the Premier League, as Almiron has never played in the, uh, the Premier League, um, and also to come from different continents and then be expected to perform. And, and when they're attacking players and you put them in a team that... Uh, that plays that fashion, um, it's going to be hard for them to score goals and then the confidence can can decline quite quickly. So um, do we expect Newcastle to solve their, their, their transfer policy while Mike Ashley is in charge of the club? I think the fundamental block there has been um, he's never wanted to spend really serious money on this team. Um, it doesn't really seem to have been a joined-up approach about the transfer business for a long time. Uh, and it will be interesting to see if that changes. Sumari is, you know, that that's that's a very ambitious move from Newcastle. If they got that, they got a player that the top clubs in Europe into uh, cover into their team by by doing it in the January window when others weren't prepared to act. You know, that you'd have to say that would have been something of a coup for them. Well, from one failed transfer deal to another, uh, one perhaps that less people know about because uh, Sumari was all over the press. This one is Tottenham's attempts to sign Israeli international Eran Zavi, a player, Duncan, with a quite astonishing goal record when you look at what he's done over the last few years. Yeah, it's a really interesting player, Zavi. Um, very much a left field effort from Tottenham, a very, very late effort. Um, the information I have from Israel is that they did not make contact with Zahavi and his camp until seven o'clock on deadline day. Um, and remember, this is a player who plays in China for Guangzhou. So at the time at which they made contact uh, to try and get this deal over the line, it was three in the morning in China. Um, I'm told uh, by a friend of the player that it was very close to happening. Um, and the block was that Guangzhou were prepared to let him go on loan to Tottenham, which was, as we told you all through this window, Daniel Levy wanted a loan with an option to buy for this emergency hurricane replacement he was going to be bringing in. Guangzhou were ready to do that. But what they said to Zahavi was, we will only loan you if you sign a new contract. Um, he's out of contract at the end of this year. Um, but you sign that contract on substantially reduced financial terms. He's very well paid in China um, because he's been such a success there. He spent three and a half years in the Chinese league. Um, last season, he scored 29 in 28 goals, which is the highest ever um, scoring return for a striker uh, for any player in the Chinese Super League. Um, he's, he's an interesting individual because he, he, di he didn't play striker for most of his career. He was converted into a striker by Paulo Souza at Maccabi Tel Aviv from being a midfielder. Um, he 
and and from the time he became a striker turned into a very prolific scorer someone that Scotland fans will be paying attention to because he is going to be the centre forward for Israel um, when they play Scotland in the first of Scotland's uh, European uh, Championship qualifiers Ach Duncan we'll scoosh it (laughs) (laughs) Where where does that confidence come from Johnny? Uh, Next (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nowhere well, nowhere that's logical the, the the plus side of this deal falling through for Scotland fans is that he's now struggling to play football um, before that March uh, 26 qualifier um, Chinese league is obviously um, not being played at the moment he wanted to try and get football uh, to, to prepare for that game he hasn't been able to move to Europe He's got very few options left to um, uh, Major League Soccer would be one option. Again, that wouldn't give him uh, much actual playing time before the tie. But up to Guangzhou are being very resistant and saying they, they don't want to sell the player. But um, an interesting move from Tottenham to try and give Mourinho the, the type of striker he wanted. And this is a player, obviously, Mourinho knew, having played against um, Maccabi Tel Aviv in the Champions League with Chelsea 2015 and Paulo Sosa being a friend of Mourinho's. So he would have had good knowledge on the player's qualities and his, his suitability to come into the team and solve that hurricane-shaped problem he has in, uh, in, in Tottenham's squad at present. We're going to move on to Pep Guardiola and Man City now. That's six league defeats so far this season. Um, some rather catty comments about the Premier League. The question I have here, Duncan, is this. Is the way Liverpool are running away with this league disguising what is quickly becoming something of a meltdown by Man City's Spanish boss here? <laughs> he's not happy, that's clear. Um, he's not happy with Manchester City for the recruitment work they did in the summer. He's not happy with the authorities. He's not happy, I think, with good reason, uh, with the refereeing of Manchester City games this season and VAR decisions that have gone against them. And, you know, you can track back to their first game against Tottenham where they had that ridiculous handball decision against Americ Laporte that stopped them from winning uh, that match and, and set them behind, I think, Liverpool for the first time in the season. And then obviously the, the head-to-head with Liverpool was the infamous Trent Alexander-Arnold uh, Schrodinger's handball, as we called it on the podcast, um, not given as a penalty, but Liverpool go up the other end and score the opening goal of the game. Um, the rules, as uh, ridiculously rewritten by the English authorities and accepted by IFAB for this season, say that you cannot have a um, handball in the build-up to a goal, but um, that one was permitted and Liverpool won that match. And, uh, and from then on, just... Uh, uh, created a larger and larger gap and have the title very much won. There's a, if you watch the video of the press conference, um, it's quite amusing to look at Pep Guardiola's reaction when he's asked if, he, uh, if he's conceded the league and uh, sort of responds to the journalist by uh, uh, making a face which suggests he thinks he's absolutely crazy to even ask that question. He, he's pushed on Liverpool's huge advantage, I think 22 points ahead of the largest ever advantage um, 
the leaders have had over second place in the top flight season. And he's asked whether it's a problem for his team and also the rest of the Premier League that Liverpool are so far ahead. And his response, as you say, is, is fairly catty. It's, well, the last two seasons, it was an owner from the Premier League said that cannot happen again. It's not good for the Premier League City win the title in that way with 100 points. So now it's Liverpool. You have to be concerned, the owner, for the Premier League. And he's talking there, he's referring there to uh, Richard Scudamore, who is no longer um, the, the chief figure in the Premier League, but was at the time. And after Manchester City's 19-point win in 2018, was said on record that it would be good for the Premier League if someone was able to get a little bit closer to Manchester City. That obviously went down very badly with Guardiola. And Guardiola's trying to remind people about it and say, well, if it was so bad for the Premier League that Manchester City won by 19 points, what is this? what does this season mean for the Premier League? And um, are the senior people in the Premier League going to do anything about it as they intimated that they might be trying to do um, when we were winning by such a huge margin. Do you get a sense that he's going to get, should he be around? I mean, I'm assuming that he'll be the manager next year. I mean, I don't know if you think that's a definite or not, but should he be around? Do you think Man City will invest heavily to rejuvenate this squad in the summer? Absolutely. He, he's pushing them to spend and sort out what he says are mounting problems in the team. Um, obviously, they have big issues at centre-back. That was clear when Vincent Company was lost to them. Um, they were caught by surprise by Company leaving for Belgium when they thought they would be able to extend his contract after he'd had such a, a fine end to last season. Um, they lost a medical report to injury early on, and that just exposed how weak their defence has been. You see John Stones completely left out of the squad for the game against Tottenham. Um, the teenage Eric Garcia picked ahead of him uh, to be on the bench um, with Fernandinho playing uh, as a converted midfielder in central defence again. Not happy at left back. Um, you have the ongoing problem with Leroy Zani, who um, they do not know whether he will continue at the club, given Bayern Munich's interest in him, a story that was you know, first reported on this, this podcast some time ago. Now, um, he wants to freshen up the squad. He feels that psychologically they've lost um, some of their hunger. And I think he knows that he's a difficult manager to work with. He's a very demanding manager to work with. And I, I, you can see from the first title he won at Manchester City and the first interview, long interview he gave after winning at Manchester City, his emphasis on how hard it was to win back-to-back -back titles and kind of saying, well, the Champions League isn't the hardest thing for me. The hardest thing is to get this team to win two in a row because winning one title is a lot easier than winning the second title when your players, you've got the risk your players sit back and think uh, they're good enough and, and don't focus in the same way in, in the next season. So yes, um, you also see from his, his press conference ahead of the Tottenham game, him discussing the idea that he would be seen as a failure if he did not win the Champions League during his time at Manchester City. You can be sure that is very much on his mind. Um, he has not won the Champions League without having Lionel Messi in his team. It's been a long time since he's won the Champions League. He's been hired by two clubs and given an unprecedented spending with 
the express aim of bringing them Champions League titles. He's failed to do that. And um, he knows that he will be judged on whether he can with the you know the richest squad, most expensive squad in terms of transfer fee commitments that's ever been built in football, um, whether he can actually deliver that trophy to the Abu Dhabi owners of the club. Um, and he wants a lot more spending um, and he's arguing with them that they have to spend a lot more if they are going to achieve it and win the Premier League title back next season. My argument, Duncan, is that this should be the year when the pressure is on for Guardiola to win the Champions League because he doesn't have that fallback of saying, well, we're in the middle of this brutal, attritional Premier League uh, title challenge. We He is now able to actually select and rotate his team based on the key matches, which will be uh, the Champions League games because he doesn't have to prioritise Premier League games anymore. City will, t- will finish in the top four. There's no question of that. Is that a fair comment? He, look, he is talking in the press conferences now about the importance of qualifying Manchester City for the league. But yes, it should not be difficult to get them into the Champions League next season. And, there, and he certainly does have the option of prioritising Champions League matches to try and uh, right the wrongs of his previous knockout campaigns where they've gone out to um, inferior squads every time and 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 clubs that they should be eliminating uh, after big, in, in more than one case, big tactical errors by Guardiola in, in the important games. Um, so th- there's a big focus there. You have to say the team, there is something wrong with the team, and it's, it's a problem, obviously, with the defence, but it's also a problem with the attack and that they're not putting away chances that, they used to put away and it's the, the game against Tottenham was a good example of that um, they should have scored uh, in the first half they had far more shots and goal than Tottenham uh, Tottenham end up winning with three shots and goal all on target 2-0 take the three points um, and but they're not the, the elements aren't just not finishing and not defending well you see uh, an extra aggressivity to the way they play the tactical fouling that has been so important to their success in the Premier League isn't being implemented as well. The game against Tottenham, um, Raheem Sterling was very fortunate not to see a straight red card for a tactical foul um, or an attempt to get the ball back as quickly as possible on the edge of the the, the Tottenham area, which um, we'll see how serious the damage turns out to be to Delhi Alley. Um, it's a horrendous tackle if you watch it, in, particularly in slow motion, the, the amount of uh, uh, stress and movement that's placed on Delhi's ankle by Sterling's um, challenge on him. Uh, Alexander Zinchenko had a, a bad uh, studs-up challenge earlier in the game, and we're talking early in the first half, um, which the, the referee missed or excused. Um, someone was pointing out that uh, the Manchester City had 68% possession in the game, but they end up with 14 fouls relative to Tottenham's eight. And Tottenham obviously playing defensive football. You'd expect them to be fouling more. Five yellow cards um, relative to Tottenham's two and one red card relative to Tottenham's zero. And, and as I say, it could have been more than one red card for the way they're playing. So the, the machine isn't functioning properly. And it's probably not a surprise that Guardiola's answer when the, re- the machine isn't functioning properly is... I need new players. 
Okay, well, we're going to move on to our heroes and villains round now. It's that time. Uh, I'm going to go first. Uh, my hero of the week is Glenn Murray, friend of the Transfer Window podcast. There was a lot of chat about Glenn perhaps going out on loan. There was interest, serious interest from Nottingham Forest. Uh, up here in Scotland, both the Rangers and Celtic, I think, had a wee sniff, a wee nibble around Glenn. Uh, but nothing quite came off, and it looked like maybe he would uh, languish in the reserves at Brighton. He's 36 and perhaps look to continue his career elsewhere at the end of the season. But he's obviously fought his way back into the reckoning, and against West Ham on Saturday, he led the line like a man who was 10 years younger. He was running down channels, bizarrely, which is not something we're used to seeing from, from Glenn, and he was even you know, holding the ball up with his usual aplomb as well, and he capped it off with just a terrific goal, uh, which was held up for a VAR check, but Glenn was quite obviously completely intent that that ball did not hit him on the hand and uh, continued to celebrate regardless of the VAR check. And it was just magnificent to see a guy age 36 who's gone through a lot recently in terms of potentially leaving the club to come back and uh, really restate his case for a place in that Brighton team. And we're talking about a guy who's who's had a bit of a journeyman career at times in the lower leagues, but since arriving at Brighton has found his home and, and, and has shown himself to be a fine, fine player in the, the Premier League. So it was good to see him back in the reckoning. So he's my hero of the week. Yeah, look, Glenn has been desperate to play football and now Brighton are, are put under a bit of pressure and the, and the results have been going the wrong way, brought into the team and, and delivers. And actually... Um, if you look at the statistics, and there's some up on the on the transfer window podcast site, um, because uh, journalists mentioned that um, if Manchester United were going for players like Josh King and Igalo, perhaps Glenn Murray might not have been a better um, short-term uh, solution for them, given that he was uh, proven in the Premier League and fit and, and ready to go. And his numbers, the scoring numbers in the Premier League, playing for a Brighton side who are been battling to stay in the division, are are quite. Um, spectacularly good um, and also his um, his contribution off the ball was the, the one of the things that, that really impressed me about uh, Glenn's numbers so that, that running down the channel and running onto opponents he actually does quite a lot of uh, might not do it very quickly um, <laughs> but uh, but he does it um, and yeah you're right it's, quite, it's good to see him scoring again and, and hopefully we'll have Glenn on the podcast again before too long because he's uh, he's been very good as an analyst for us too Right, I've, I've got the easy one, Duncan, because I'm praising somebody. So so I'm Mr. Nice Guy. Now, you get to wear the villain hat. Who are you going to stick the boot into? I'm going to pick, uh, I think, the villain of the week for uh, the Liverpool supporters, um, which was Ralph Hasenhutl, um, who uh, had the temerity to question the failure of VAR to give a penalty um, for Danny Ings um, after he'd been fouled by Fabinho, um, in the area um, with the score at 0-0 in that um, latest game and what has turned out to be Liverpool's procession to uh, the title. And Hassan Hutto uh, was asking why it took so little time um, for a decision to be made on the penalty because not only were Southampton not given a penalty, Liverpool went up the other end of the field and scored. And Hassan Hutto says, the time of the decision the VAR took after the penalty we didn't get, it was, I think, 10 seconds to be that clear that Ingsy was going down because of nothing, I don't know. But you must say, be brave at that moment, I think, to say, 
okay, no goal. We get penalty here at Anfield. That will not happen, I think. And I, I think Hasenhut was getting to the core of the problem, which is or one of the many problems with VAR, which is it will tend to be biased towards the home side. Um, how brave do you have to be to give the penalty um, to a Southampton side who probably had the better of the first half, um, definitely had the better chances in the first half, uh, and might be a goal that ends that incredible run of victories at Anfield. Um, I think that there's a, the pressure is going from being the person who stops Liverpool from winning the league for the first time in 30 years, because we know that's going to happen, to this pressure of being the one who stops this incredible run and being held responsible, potentially held responsible as the, the referee who gives a decision against Liverpool at Anfield that could end the run. And the start of that game, we saw Andy Robertson pass the ball back to Alison Becker and go and Alison Becker pick it up. And everyone, uh, I think every neutral, um, watching that, thought, well, you don't get much more clear of a pass back than the one Robertson did, um, yet no free kick was given. And um, it would have been a fascinating free kick because Becker picked it up about a foot from his post in the six-yard area. Um, and, yeah, fill-in of the week for the Liverpool supporters, but um, I think Ralph Hasenhuel makes a very valid point about the operation of VAR and uh one of the problems we have with it. And, you know, it's quite hard to find people in the Premier League who are in favour of VAR. Now they've, they've had, uh, what is it, six months of having to, to play under it. It's, been, it's telling how um, opinion has changed towards it and, um, and how problematic it's been in this season. Duncan, we like to think of ourselves as the thinking man's football podcast. Perhaps not when I'm on, but generally with you <laughs> and Ian McGarry. Uh, so we don't, subscribe to conspiracy theories however you look at that kind of incident and it was such a stone wall penalty and, and you know i have liverpool leanings and I, i'm openly admitting that it was a an absolute stone waller and you wonder how var who have the facility to watch something over and over again could get that quite so spectacularly wrong i mean here in scotland we don't have var and uh, the proponents of it say well you know these kind of clear and obvious issues are going to get cleared up by the use of this technology. But here we have evidence of a situation that's almost quite remarkable that it wasn't spotted. I, I don't think it was a stonewall penalty. I do think it was a penalty. But I think Hasenhutl's point is the, is the correct one here. It took VAR virtually no time to decide that an error had not been made. Um, where as you have the, the Tottenham-Manchester City match where VAR takes two minutes to intervene with Mike Dean and get him to stop play and, and decide that it was a penalty um, when um, Sergio Ore had taken um, Sergio Aguero down in the box. Now, the Ore-Aguero one, I think, is less clean-cut um, and I, I don't think it was a clear and obvious error I think that there, there's an argument that Aurea got a touch um, to the ball just after Aguero deflects it away. Um, and under the, the guidelines, it has to be clearly wrong. And it wasn't, in my view, clearly wrong. And if it takes two minutes to come to that decision, then you, the, the common sense approach is that it isn't clear and obvious that there's been an error. Um, 
the, the system is not working well and it will not fix things. And if you know Scottish football thinks it's going to be a panacea, it really needs to pay more attention to what's going on in England and the degree of resistance from players, from coaches, from um, staff. And I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think there's any conspiracy theory here about people actively trying to help Liverpool win the league. But I think there are pressures on the officials. And as we, we know that officials are biased towards home teams, we know they're biased towards bigger teams. This is you know, scientifically demonstrated. Spoken and, like a true Dundee United fan there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, years of suffering under the, the, the Celtic Rangers uh, refereeing oak. Um, but we know these things. Liverpool prides itself on the, on the power of its support at Anfield. Um, they are a big influential club and it, it's, it's fairly logical to say that referees are under pressure to give decisions in Liverpool's favour in a way that they wouldn't be if it was a Brighton and Hove Albion game, for example. Um, and therefore Liverpool have had uh, the rub of the green when it comes to refereeing decisions this season in the, in the round. And VAR decisions in the round, and I think there's there's good evidence for that. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's highlighting an issue with the decisions that have been made, and with the technology that allows um, two shots of favouritism for the bigger side or the home side, because you've got not only the pressure on the referee, you've got the VARs having pressure on them. So you've got two options to correct it and help. The bigger sides, and I think when when someone has the ability to do a proper statistical analysis on this, you will see that it comes out. We've seen it in the Champions League. We saw last season. We've seen it this season. Real Madrid getting absurd decisions in their favour in key games in the Champions League. Who do who are more important to UEFA? Who are officials under pressure to keep in the tournament? Real Madrid or Ajax or Club Brew? Um, it's an easy question to answer. And you get these kind of problems coming from the system. Okay, well, we're going to call a day there. If you want to continue the debate or discuss with us anything that we've talked about on the podcast today, you can get me at Johnny R. McFarlane and Duncan at Duncan Castles. We'd also like you to go on iTunes and give us a five-star review as this helps us get the podcast to as many listeners as possible we'll be back on wednesday to answer your questions so get onto social media we're on instagram we're on facebook and we're on twitter and give us questions for that podcast which we'll be delighted to answer until then thanks for listening 